The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, Bethlehem. That was the best good morning I've ever heard. Wow, that is really good. Maybe it just sounds different when you're up here. All right, so we're going to start with our text, Acts 6, verses 8 through 15. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Acts 6. We're going to take a look at the next account that the author Luke gives us. Acts 6, 8 through 15. This is God's word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the angel, the face of an angel. Let's pray. So Father... Just like you have for 150 years, you've built up this church through your word, through the grace, the undeserved favor that comes from your scriptures and the good news that is found in Jesus. And that's what we're asking for you to do again. Would you build up, my brothers and sisters, this church once again? Would you fill us with your spirit that we might be worshipers and witnesses for you in this city and wherever you take us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So like Jared uh, mentioned, my name is James, James Leckler, and and my wife Betsy and I have uh, seemingly been called uh, by the Lord to plant a church in San Diego, California. So in two weeks, yeah, yeah, it's exciting, thank you. So in two weeks, we are... Uh, Lord willing, we are going to get a pack of our van uh, with our four children and a bunch of snacks and uh, spend the five-day trip heading west. So you can please pray for us. Um, but we are, we are extremely excited to be a part of what God is doing in San Diego. And we're excited to plant Center City Church of San Diego. Our hope is that God would plant a church that centers on Christ, making him known in San Diego and knowing him. So we're, we're moving to San Diego because the church is on the move. Just like it was uh, in, in the first, uh, in the early church, and just like it was 150 years ago at Bethlehem, and just like it will continue to be here. And in, tw- in 2015, many of you uh, weren't here, but uh, we had an initiative called 25, or we still do, called 25 by 25. And one of the aims of that initiative, something we, we felt like the Lord was putting on our hearts, was to plant 25 churches 
by the year 2025. And by God's grace, Center City Church will be the 14th church planted in six years. That is the Lord. That is the church on the move. Amen. Now, the, now Luke, the author of Acts, uh, wrote dozens of accounts of what God's Spirit was doing in the early church to spread the fame and the name of Jesus. Last week, Ken showed us in the book of Acts how the, the early church was having a lot of internal conflict. There were certain uh, widows who were not being cared for. They were vulnerable and they were not being cared for as they ought in God's people. And so God gave the solution of spiritual leaders that would provide oversight of the distribution of food. And I find it amazing. See what God does right after, uh, right after God provides um, those new leaders. It says in Acts 6 and 7, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God's gift of servant leaders caused the gospel to continue to prosper to the point of penetrating the deepest aspects of Jewish society, the priesthood. Each of these accounts that Luke is writing to us, is what he's wanting to give the readers certainty Certainty that Jesus was in fact, is in fact, the Messiah who died, was raised, ascended into heaven, and was given all authority to extend his name throughout the earth. So my hope for our time this morning, friends, is this, simply this, that we would witness Christ in the life of Stephen, and that that would lead us to have hope in Christ's work in our own lives, that we would witness Christ in the life of Stephen, and that would give us hope in Christ's work in our own lives. So here's the outline for those of us who are really helped by outlines. So first we're going to look at the context. Then we're going to look at the conflict. Then we're going to see the confirmation that's given by the Lord. First we're going to look at the context, then look at the conflict, and then the confirmation. But first the context. So let's consider where we're at in Acts and because it's the 21st century, I thought it would be helpful to try to put Acts in kind of like if it was a TV series. So if Acts was a TV series, and we remember that Jesus said to his disciples in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, that you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So in Jerusalem is season 1. That's season one of this TV series. And the first five episodes, I think, are something like this, if we're going to title them. Episode one, commissioning. Jesus commissions his disciples and ascends into heaven. Episode two, Pentecost. The Spirit is sent and the church is born. Episode three, witnesses, apostolic preaching, and the signs. Episode four, resistance, outside persecution and internal conflict. And now, where we're at today, episode five, martyrs. The blood of the saints seeding the spread of the church. So let's zoom in now on the account in Acts 6, 8 through 15. So some context on Stephen. Last week we saw in 1 through 7 that there was a selection of seven new servant leaders in the church. One of those leaders was Stephen. And all we really know about Stephen is found in the book of Acts. Stephen is said to be, like the rest of the servant leaders, of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Verse 5, Stephen is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, Stephen is full of grace and power, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, 
full of grace and power. And up until this point, only the apostles were performing signs and wonders. But now after laying hands on the servant leaders, we see that Stephen is also performing miracles among the people of Jerusalem. These miracles were a pretty big deal in Jewish culture because they were validating, these miracles validated the message of the messenger. And that message was that Jesus was the Messiah. Stephen's proverbial stock was on the rise in Jerusalem. He was in the prime of his ministry. He was caring for the vulnerable, preaching the good news, and performing miracles. And then controversy arises. And that leads us to point two, the conflict. Look at verse nine with me. Verse nine. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now there were hundreds of synagogues in Jerusalem. Um, Apparently leaders from the Greek-speaking synagogues took an interest in debating with Stephen. The places that are listed in these, of these regions are all over the Roman Empire. And these people either moved, these were, these were Jewish people that are debating with Stephen, and they likely either moved from their homelands across the Roman Empire, or they were on a pilgrimage to worship in the temple. And Luke doesn't explicitly tell us what they're debating or disputing about in this verse. We can safely assume that it's probably a disagreement about Jesus as the Messiah, since that's what all of the disputes have been thus far in Acts. However, there are some very uh, clear clues once we get to uh, later in, in the text. So before we move on, I want to make a quick, quick observation. Friends, it's very, very easy in, in our current day to think that if I am being faithful to God or if we are being faithful as a church, there won't be any friction. There's not going to be any opposition, right? Things are going to go well because we're being faithful. We're going to have a lot of likes and a lot of retweets. That is simply not what Jesus promised. When the church is on the move, there's going to be friction. Satan does not give ground easily and the world always rejects or tries to subvert the message of the gospel. Luke recorded Jesus saying this in Luke 21, 12 through 15. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. We will meet resistance, friends. But Jesus promised he will give us the words and wisdom we need in those moments of need when we are being opposed. And look at how Jesus fulfills this promise in the text that we're reading today. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Jesus was giving Stephen wisdom and insight through the spirit about Jesus. That wisdom and insight could not be refuted, just like Jesus promised in the Gospel of Luke. Now you would expect that Stephen's opponents would possibly give ground, that they would under, that, that they would stop trying to undermine his ministry and stop trying to find holes in his wisdom. But instead, they try to take him out. Let's, uh, let's look at um, verses 11 through 14. Let's see what they do. 
Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Our culture is no stranger to mob mentality, is it? It's easy to hear a soundbite, read a tweet, see a video, and pronounce judgment on that person. In this case, Jerusalem is being filled with a new narrative about Stephen. The man who was once of good reputation is now standing before the highest court in all Jerusalem. The charge? Blasphemy. What would happen if he's charged as guilty? Death. So what is, the, what is the real crux of the conflict here? What's, what's really happening in this dispute? I think we have some really clear clues, major clues, of the accusations being made by Stephen's opposition in these, these four verses, 11 through 14. Stephen's accusers say he is speaking against Moses, the law, and the temple. Then they say, we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Now the place they're referring to is the temple where the Jews would perform sacrifices and come to worship. Now we know what Stephen had received was from the apostles' teaching. And what the the apostles had received was from Jesus. And one place we see similar language about what Stephen is being accused for is in John 2. So we're going to take a look at John 2 real quick. John 2 is going to give us some insight into what these, these uh, accusers are probably putting Stephen on trial for. John 2, verse 19. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, is Jesus a temple terrorist? Is that what he is? Is Jesus a temple terrorist? Is that what he came to do? Is to bring literal destruction to the temple in Jerusalem? Let's let's keep reading in John 2 and verse 21 and see what the answer to that question is. In verse 21, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus' teaching what was taught him by the apostles who were taught by Christ, and that is this. The temple is the place God dwelt with his people before the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, true worshipers come to God through him. In John chapter 4, just a, a couple stories later in John, Jesus told the woman at the well that the Messiah would inaugurate a new standard of worship Worship that doesn't require you to be at a specific location, but worship that is in spirit and truth through Christ. God is now accessible to all through Jesus Christ. God is now accessible to all through Jesus Christ. In Christ, worship of God is wherever his worshipers are. Worship of God is wherever his worshipers are through Christ. For hundreds of years, God's favor was secured through faithfulness to the law. 
he gave to Moses, uh, for the law he gave to Moses. His favor was enjoyed through worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Then the Messiah came. He fulfilled the law. He became the new temple of God's presence with his people, according to John 2, like we just saw. We don't go to the temple anymore to make sacrifices to meet with God and enjoy his favor. We go to Jesus, who was our perfect sacrifice and who is the very presence of God with us. Hebrews 10 says, says it clearly and succinctly like this. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Just like shadows point us to the reality of something, like sitting in the shadow of a big tree points us up to the tree. So the temple pointed these people up to the reality of the Messiah, the one who is now the new access point into the presence of God. So that's the crux of the conflict. Stephen sees Christ as the real access point to the presence of God, and his accusers do not. Just like Stephen, friends, we, we try to win those, of those we love with winsome arguments. Um, we, we know we cannot win anyone to Christ. We cannot cause anyone to see the reality of Christ. We, we know even in our own hearts, I know in my own heart, oftentimes I can't convince my own heart to trust and believe in Christ. And that brings us to point three where we have, we have great hope the confirmation. Let's look at Acts 6.15. Acts 6.15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now there's some debate between Bible scholars on what it means for Stephen's face to be like that of an angel. However, I think the text gives us some very strong indicators of what Luke is trying to communicate. Remember, in verse 8, Stephen's teaching about Jesus was validated by miraculous signs. Then in verse 10, Stephen's teaching about Jesus was validated by the fact that his opposition could not withstand the spirit and the wisdom by which he was teaching. And now in verse 15, Stephen's teaching about Jesus was being validated by the spirit of Jesus in him, causing his face to be like one who was in the very presence of God. Jewish readers would hear allusions in this account of Moses in Exodus 34, coming down from the mountain after being in the presence of God. Remember that that text, Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the law from God, and he's in his presence, he's in his glory, and he comes down from the mountain, and because he was in his glorious presence, his face is shining. And now we, we see Stephen and his face is like that of one who is in the presence of God. One Bible scholar says it like this. Digging further into the context of Exodus 34 and Acts 6 and 7, perhaps we could also suggest that just as Moses gave the law and was confirmed as God's spokesman with a shining face, so also Stephen's face indicated he was speaking on behalf of Christ who came to fulfill and thus change the customs that Moses delivered. A new era had come, 
And God was giving evidence to this through his messenger's words and even his messenger's face. A new era had come and has come and God was giving evidence in this through his messenger's word and even his messenger's face. Stephen is being charged with speaking against the temple. And yet by God's wisdom, he stands shining as evidence that God now meets his people, not in the temple, but in Christ, wherever they are. In that moment, as Stephen is hearing the condemnation and false accusations from his accusers, the the Spirit is is showing him faith, or giving him faith to see his Savior. Jesus already stood unjustly condemned in Stephen's place. Jesus already stood unjustly condemned in Stephen's place. But, rather, but, but now Stephen stands seeing that he is fully accepted with all the favor that comes with being in Christ. And rather than fleeing out of fear or fighting these people out of fear, he stands and he shines in front of opposition. He is basking in the Father's love as the Spirit fills him. He's bearing witness as living proof of God's new way of being in a right relationship with his people through Christ. So there Stephen stands as a witness, living proof that God's presence is ours wherever we are, through Jesus, by the Spirit. So friends, this is, this is my burden. As I was praying over this text, and I was begging the Lord that he would give me uh, a word for you all, uh, on the precipice of us leaving. This is, this is what the Lord laid on my heart, I believe. My burden for us is this. That we would have hope. Hope that God wants to fill us with his spirit. To bear witness to his b- blood-bought presence in our lives. That we would have hope that God wants to fill us with his spirit to bear witness of his blood-bought presence in our lives lives. However, my concern is that many of us will be hearing this and have two reactions about this text that I don't think we we should have. And these are reactions that I, my own heart had this week. And so I think you all are a lot like me, which is why I think these reactions probably are in many of you and that this will apply. And the first reaction is this. You read this account about Stephen, you see what Stephen did, and you go, I can't do that. That is not me. Your faith feels small. You feel distant from God. You feel too broken. You feel like a failure. You may even just feel too busy or distracted to even care that God would do this in your life. Some of you might not even be convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. But let's speak truth to our hearts and consider how Stephen became living proof proof to be, be a witness for Jesus. Does it say in this text that Stephen was a Bible scholar with his PhD? Does it say that he was uniquely courageous? Is that the description we're given by Luke? No. What do we see? Verses 5 and 8 tell us that he was full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of grace and power. Where does faith come from, friends? Where does it come from? Where does grace and power come from? Where does the Holy Spirit come from? Yes. Thank you, brother. God. God is the one that gives us each of those things. Christianity is not a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps religion. 
It's not about you figuring out how to be like Stephen. It's about the Holy Spirit filling us by the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's where the power is, friends. It is an undeserved favor from the Creator through Christ. And as Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? We can be sure that he who gave us his son to die with us, for, for us, die for us, he will surely give us his spirit to be with us wherever we go. Surely he will. And when, and, and, and this is, you know, I, I know that like you, like many of you, um, you might have a, a little different reaction than that. Um, the other reaction, rather than being deflated when you read this text, you might read it and be inflated. You might read it and say, I got that. I can do that. I've done that a little bit this week. Honestly, sadly, that's where I typically fall. I wouldn't outright say that I don't need the Holy Spirit, but oftentimes it's evidenced by my lack of desire for him, my lack of seeing where his work is, is, is manifesting itself in my life and just taking credit for it myself. Jesus' disciples struggled with this too. They were men like we were, constantly tempted to trust their own resources and abilities. Listen to what Jesus said to them in John fifteen twenty six. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Stephen was a witness for Christ because the Holy Spirit, Helper, was bearing witness about Christ through him. Friends, Stephen was a witness for Christ because the Holy Spirit, Helper, was bearing witness through him about Christ. We cannot be witnesses for Jesus if the Spirit of Jesus is not bearing witness to Jesus in us. We can only bear witness when His Spirit is bearing witness. Whether you're 80 years old or 8 years old, whether you're a church that's been around for 150 years or a church that's been around for one year, we can't bear witness unless the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to Christ in us. That is our only hope. And the good news is, is that he wants to be with us. So brothers and sisters, I want to land the plane like this. When we look at this account of Stephen, I simply hope we see Jesus. He is the new and better temple, and his presence is now with us through the Spirit. He meets us wherever we are. And as an example in my own life, just so you might know how to even crawl into this once you, once you leave this pew, this is, what it looked like, uh, this is what it looked like for me this week. So the first half of the week, I very much had the I can do this mentality. I can figure this sermon out. I'm going to get out in front of it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write it out. And I can figure out the transition and all the logistics of moving my family. I got this. And as you can imagine, by Wednesday afternoon, I felt crushed. I was feeling the weight of anxiety. I was feeling the I cannot do this mentality. I felt very burdened. And in that moment, by God's grace, even in all of my pride, guess what he did? He opened my eyes to my need. And he said, James, cry out to me. And so I did. So I said, please, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. And in his mercy that night, we had guys' time for our small group. And they, as I confessed that to them, they pointed me to Christ. God used them to point me to the one who is the substance, to the one who points beyond all the shadows. 
And, the, and, and really, the most beautiful thing about all of that, you might think, oh great, now you can figure out your logistics and, and you're able to figure out your sermon. That was not the most beautiful thing. The most beautiful thing was that in that moment, I got more of Christ. His spirit filled me and I, I could sense he is with me in this. He is with me wherever I go, whether in a pulpit or in San Diego, wherever he takes any of us, he is with us. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 24, but as for me, it is good to be near God. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have taken refuge in him that I might tell of all his works. So, I just want to ask you two questions, and I want you to ask these of yourself, ask these of one another, maybe in your small group and your family as you leave. Where do you feel like you live a life on autopilot? Say, I got this. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in the office every single day. Maybe it's at home, waking up in the morning. It's easy to just feel this, I'm, I'm doing this myself. I can resource this myself. Where do you feel like you just forget your need for God? And then the second question would be this. Where in your life would you say, I don't got this? You feel weak. You feel broken. You feel like you have zero power. Friends, answer those questions and then confess those answers to Christ. Give them to him. He wants to hear them. And then confess them to his people, your community. And then ask God to get your eyes off of yourself by filling you with his spirit. Say, God, you can simply just say, God, fill me with your spirit. He loves to answer that prayer. He loves to answer it and point you past the shadows to Christ, our substance. That is a blood-bought promise. So, as we're filled with his spirit, he will fill these cities with his fame and his name. As we are filled with his spirit, he will fill these cities with his fame and his name. He will do it through ordinary people like all of us, through the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit in us. Let's pray. So that's exactly what we ask, Lord. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that as you do, it would take our eyes off ourselves and it would get our eyes onto our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the better temple, that you came and you fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law so that we could be uh, with you wherever we go. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking to us through your word. You are faithful. You always are faithful. Now I pray against the evil one. I pray that the evil one would not be able to snatch any of your words out of the hearts of my brothers and sisters, but that they would dwell in our hearts richly and bear much fruit as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, 
spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.